0: Is that banging? Yeah. I know it would drive you nuts, right, if I did that the whole time. I was <laughs> talking to him. He's from This is Mr. Dharmacy, by the way. Actually Dennis is there too. <laughs> what I want to talk about tonight is seclusion, or riveka. um translated seclusion. There's a, there's a line uh, in Sutta Nikaya where someone says, do you know, dear sir, emancipation, release, seclusion for beings? And Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his footnote, says that these are three different designations for nibbana, Emancipation Release, Seclusion for Beings, Rueika. So I'm going to talk about different aspects of seclusion. Starting, of course, with the first one is the sense of being secluded from people, being on retreat, basically. Now, how, and in all the different levels, and it's not like they're levels, but not hierarchical, each of these different aspects of seclusion how is it supportive for us in recognizing natural peace and in, in recognizing and coming back again and again to the heart and mind of non-clinging? Why and how is seclusion supportive and helpful? And is it unnecessary? Do you have to be secluded? That's the other question. So the first aspect, going on retreat, seclusion, this kind of separation from the hubbub, from other people to the point of living completely secluded, which in our culture, and probably even back with the Buddha, it was always kind of um, a little, what's the word? It wasn't always accepted by everyone. And even, I find, I mentioned it this morning, even in myself, sometimes the feeling, why should I need to separate from life? and go on retreat, is awakening, is mindfulness, is being able to recognize how the mind works. Do I have to be separated from so-called life? As if this isn't life and that is life. But do I have to be separated? And how does the separation help? Obviously, we think it helps. Hopefully, that's why you're here. (laughs) Um, I've read a couple of books about the um, early Christian desert fathers, and it's really interesting, if you want to talk about seclusion, physical seclusion, they really had it down. Just, <laughs> one, the most famous one that I've read about, is called um, St. Anthony of Egypt. And he, um, his life inspired thousands. This is from a book about hermits. His life inspired thousands of people to leave their homes and follow him. He lived about, well, when he actually renounced or went off into the most secluded part of the desert in Egypt. It was about 285 A.D., so two, three hundred years after Jesus. He was a Christian, and he was from a wealthy family. His parents died, and he had a lot of money, but he heard the Christian teaching to give all you have to the poor and follow Jesus. And as this person, writer said, he actually believed it and did it and gave away everything he had and went to the desert to be alone, and he kept going to more and more remote places until finally he ended up um, in a deserted fort on the east bank of the Nile, 50 miles south of Memphis, way down there. He lived alone without seeing a human face for over 20 years, being brought supplies of bread and water every six months. 20 years. Sometimes the friends who brought these supplies would hear terrifying shrieks and groans from behind the locked doors. Eventually, they couldn't stand this any longer. It took them 20 years. And they broke down the doors, expecting to release a wasted and emaciated maniac. But Antony emerged healthy, sane, and balanced. He went to Alexandria to support Christians who were being persecuted there. And then he spent the rest of his life alternating between helping people, giving advice, being present for people, and then going back into retreat. So I just find that the whole thing really interesting. Who knows what went on for him in those 20 years. But I think in a little bit, a little way, you know, we can... Imagine, just the little bit that we're here, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So that's the first kind of seclusion. The most obvious, the grossest, is actual seclusion from from other human beings, right? And again, of course, realizing that the point of it isn't because we hate other human beings. I mean, hopefully. (laughs) Or if that's the point in the beginning, hopefully that doesn't stay the point. Thomas Merton, who you know, the, the Trappist monk who spent a lot of his life wanting to be a hermit. He, I don't know if he actually got to be a hermit as much as he wanted to be, but he wrote about it a lot. The search for solitude is a journey to discover the inner self. The monks, he's talking about the Desert Fathers again. The monks fled to the desert to become ordinary. If they had gone there to become extraordinary... This would have meant taking the world with them as a standard of comparison. They lived among the rocks just because they wanted to be themselves. Just to become ordinary. I love that. Because sometimes I feel like my, my aspiration, my biggest aspiration in practice is just to become so totally ordinary, you know? Nothing special. So seclusion of body out of this wanting to discover ourselves. How does the mind work? How does the heart work? And that's only the very beginning. It's a lot. Just being quiet, being away from people, being away from engagement. But certainly in in our practice, and not only here, that... That's just the very beginning. The seclusion from other people, the seclusion from the busyness of our lives is uh, really simply a support to help us mm, be able to be a little more secluded from what Ajahn Chah calls the flood of sense experience. You you know what I mean, right? It's not even just about other people but just about, and this is when we talk about renunciation, I'm talking about just a seclusion here, this sense of we come to a place like this, a retreat, where we are with other people, but we're not speaking, and we're secluded from so much of the sensory input that we experience in our daily life, the five physical senses and also the mental input. There's so much of it. This is from Ajahn Chah. He calls it kamoga, the flood of sensuality. He says we're sunk in sights, in sounds, in smells, in tastes, in bodily sensations, sunk in them. We're sunk because we look at the externals. We look at these experiences. We don't look internally. It's like being a slave. Somebody else has control over you. When they tell you to sit, you have to sit. To walk, you have to walk. He doesn't mean the people setting up the schedule of the retreat either. <laughs> he, he means the, the being sunk in wanting sense experience. Being enslaved by the senses is like this. So when we come on retreat, when we have this seclusion of body this is the first aspect kaya we wake up seclusion from people and more secluded of course not completely from the flood of sensuality not because sense experience is somehow bad or wrong but just because there's so much of it we're so overwhelmed that you know this this isn't I'm not telling you anything new there's just mostly no space to notice the silence of heart, of mind. There's no space to just notice that we're nothing but space. There's no space to recognize the quiet of a mind that's not in thrall to reaction, to sense experience. So we need to give it a little external, almost artificial space, right, just to be able to see, to recognize another possibility of how to be. So, you know, we're bombarded by seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, information, news, conversation. And I I mean, this is back from when the Buddha was talking. Now, unbelievable, right? You see, walk through an airport. I do that a lot. Sometimes just to amuse myself, I notice how many people have cell phones. It's about... Depends, one and two or one and three. I mean, they're talking on them. Probably more people have them, but this is how many people are walking through the airport talking on cell phones. Oh, hi, now I'm walking through the airport. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you hear people say. The plane lands. Oh, hi, now the plane has landed. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm at my luggage. Oh, yeah, I'm just sitting in the airport, just called to say hi. You know, I mean, I hear a million of these conversations. For what? You know, just God knows we can't be quiet for a minute. I have to know that I exist, you know? So the cell phone or the computers and the, you know, I don't have to go on. No. The news. It's just endless. It's a flood. So when we come on retreat, when we seclude ourselves physically from so much, then we're just left with the flood of our mind. The mental input, right? But over the days, in the beginning, of course, the beginning of any retreat, I don't care if you've sat for 35 years or it's the first retreat you ever did. It's a rare person who in the first couple of days, the mind doesn't either fall asleep or get really restless or go all over the place because it's like an addict, you know, coming off cold turkey. Not completely cold turkey because it can keep creating thoughts and reactions to the thoughts and endless stories and memories and in and in until you just want to throw up from it. And then, finally, the flood begins to slow down a little bit. And that's what's so great. It slows down by itself. We might think we're doing something. Feel the breath, in and out, in and out, feel the sensations, walk up and down and up. That's not slowing the flood. That is the flood. That's the the blah, blah, blah chatter. Finally, we get sick of that. We shut up. I think if we just came here, sat and walked, shut up, didn't write notes, didn't read, and just stay here for a while. Things would get really quiet in the mind. You don't actually have to do so much. Just stop doing. Stop doing. So the relentless chatter, it just starts to slow down a little bit at first in this kaiwa wake. And, and we begin maybe to notice there's a little space here. Whether you say it's in the mind, in the heart, it's not really anywhere. We just start to notice when the mind isn't obsessively relating to, sinking itself into sense experience. That's what Ajahn Chah means by we're always looking out. The attention notices hearing, it sinks into that. What does it mean? It notices a taste, it's really in that taste, exploring it, really in that thought, in the aversion. Everything's external, whether it's mental or physical. When that obsessive, Relational activity slows down a little. As Nisargadatta says, you know, in, this, in the silence, just be quiet. Just be quiet. Free from the obsession with what next. And in the silence, something may be heard that's ordinarily too fine and subtle for perception. Just start to notice the possibility of what a peace, calmness, the mind that's non-reactive, the heart that's not on fire, or just no special words at all. Just a moment when the mind isn't shouting and nothing much is going on. You don't even think of it as peace. You don't think of it as anything. But these little moments start to be more noticeable. It's not that they don't happen in life, but they're fast, and we're really good at filling them up. But it starts to happen. This is the, the... First and most uh, obvious supporting reason for kaya uveka, seclusion. This is the first aspect of seclusion of body, kaya uveka. Just the separating from so much sensory input. You've probably noticed, you've all done lots of retreats, how often meditation centers and monasteries and nunneries when they can be, tend to be in beautiful natural places when there's that possibility. And you must have, I'm sure you must have noticed how in some way nature, the beauty of nature just being how it is, the naturalness, the silence of it, is also a huge support in some way for this just letting go of the absorption of the compulsion of the being sunk in the flood of sense experience. Sure, seeing nature, that's still a sense experience. We're not trying to end sense experience here. But seeing nature, smelling you know, the leaves, hearing the birds, all of that, seeing, hearing, smelling, that's all sense experience. It's pleasant. Noticing pleasant, that's fine. So I'm not taking this out of the realm of sense experience. But there's something, I mean, have you noticed that somehow being here in the, in the wind and the leaves and the smell of the leaves and the birds somehow brings us into a sense of presence and peace a little different from watching CSI Miami? I mean, somehow they're both sense experiences, but somehow it's, I'm guessing, actually, I've never watched CSI Miami. I was just told that that's like the most popular show on TV and millions of people watch it. it was just, so that was just an example, watching anything. And it's, I, it's, it's you know, ever since the time of the Buddha, there's a sense of appreciating nature. He's always saying there are these roots of trees, you know, there are these forests, go sit there. And it was nothing, um, it's appreciating the The stillness of nature, and I don't mean stillness if nothing's happening, but the stillness that it touches in our mind and heart of non-reactivity. That's really, for me, what being in nature does on a retreat, just that, ah, we stop fighting it. We just open. There's no resistance. It can bring us into a sense of presence, the appreciation, but a presence that's not um, filled with desiring, with wanting, it's actually, for me, I noticed the silence of non-self-referencing. When you're just sitting outside and just that, ah, before it gets to, I'm sitting here enjoying nature. But when it's just, ah, the space, the peace, the silence, it, it mirrors the space, the peace, the silence of mind, of chitta. It allows us to recognize this. And it's something that's so supportive as an aspect of seclusion. Even in, again, as I was saying, even in the Buddha's time, the, most, the monk of his sangha who was renowned as the most ascetic, the kind of, he was kind of the most hardline one. They all had little names. The most ascetic was Mahakashapa. But he loved nature. And this is a poem, Andy Andy Alinsky translated this, but this is from Kashapa. So people sometimes think that the renunciate ascetic is kind of sour and, you know, not liking anything, and you wouldn't appreciate nature because that's just clinging to pleasant experience, you know. But no, he says, I'll just read you a few stanzas. Strung with garlands of flowering vines, this patch of earth delights the mind the lovely calls of elephants sound. These rocky crags do please me so. The shimmering hue of darkening clouds, cool waters in pure streams flowing, enveloped by Indra's ladybugs, these rocky crags do please me so. Like the lofty peaks of looming clouds, like the most refined of palaces, the lovely calls of Tusker's sound. These rocky crags do please me so. And he goes on and on. You really get the sense, you know, um, just that appreciation of the beauty. And, of course, being that he was an Arhat, he doesn't just, he ends it with making the point, so I have to do that too. But there is not so much contentment for me in this 5 music as in truly seeing Dhamma with a well-collected mind. So just making the point that the beauty, the pleasure, the peace of nature is the support for seeing Dhamma. And so I bring that up so that we can, can let that in. Don't confuse it with just being sunk in the flood of sensuality. Use the beauty of nature, use the silence, use the peace, that it brings up, that it helps us recognize in our heart and mind the lack of self-referencing. And if, if you find that the, you, the mind is using the nature as a way of sinking into the flood of sensuality instead, you'll notice it because peace won't be what you're experiencing. You know, you know that. You go out and someone's saying, I want the leaves to be prettier. I want them to be redder. I want the turkeys to come. I want, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, right, this is, <laughs> this is wanting. This has got nothing to do with the peace of the Dhamma. <laughs> I mean, our mind can do that with anything, but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with nature. <laughs> it's just noticing. So using this aspect of Kaya Uweka is really very powerful and accessible. It's lovely, times when you're just all caught up, you know, in a struggle in your mind, and you don't even know what, you can't even tell what's going on. Sometimes I just go outside and just stand or walk, not trying to fix it, you gotta give that up, but just go and be outside and just kind of let it all go into the world, into the universe. And the silence, the peace, that's our natural birthright. It's always available. It's always accessible. And we can just put down the burden, put down the fixing it, put down the ideas for a little bit. Nature's a huge support in this way. Thich Nhat Hanh. Our senses are our windows to the outside world, and sometimes the wind blows and disturbs everything within us. Many of us leave our windows open all the time, allowing the sights and sounds of the world to invade us, to penetrate us, and expose our sad, troubled selves. We feel so cold and lonely and afraid. Do you ever find yourself watching an awful TV program, but you can't turn it off? The noise, the explosions of gunfire, it's upsetting, yet you don't get up and turn it off. Why do you torture yourself in this way? Don't you want to close your windows? Are you afraid of solitude, the emptiness and the loneliness you may find? And that hits into an important aspect of even just this uh, seclusion of body, seclusion from the senses, because it's a choice we make. We're doing this out of a choice for our own awakening, our own well-being. It's not like we've been taken prisoner and put into, you know, a sensory deprivation tank. It's a choice we're making. And all of you know that in this choice of withdrawing, you know, this constant bombardment, withdrawing our senses from that, the space of peace, of completeness, of quiet is not always the only thing that can arise. St. Anthony's shrieking and groaning there behind the doors. And so Thich Han says, are you afraid of what you may find if you close the windows, if you turn off the door, if you turn off the TV? And so sometimes this sense of, Just the beginning, the physical withdrawal, the solitude, the pulling back from so much sense input, there can be, even when we know in our mind that it's useful, that it's going to support our awakening, support our re-recognizing the natural peace that's our birthright, even when we know that experientially, there can still be a kind of a kicking and screaming. I mean, you know what I mean, right? And even the Buddha, there's this, this, before he was the Buddha, there's this sutta that I love. He's talking about before he was the Buddha, somebody comes to him, comes to Ananda, and then to the Buddha, they go to the Buddha. And this is a householder, and he's saying to the Buddha, saying, sir, we're householders. We indulge in sensuality. We delight in sensuality. We enjoy sensuality. We rejoice in sensuality. For us, and he goes through it all again, indulging, delighting, enjoying, rejoicing, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, the hearts of the young monks leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace, So right here is where this doctrine is contrary to the great mass of people, this issue of renunciation. So I can really relate to that. And the Buddha says, so it is, Ananda. So it is. Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisatta, I thought renunciation is good, seclusion is good. But my heart did not leap up at the idea... It did not grow confident at the idea of renunciation, or steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. But then the thought occurred to me, what is the cause? What is the reason why my heart does not leap up at renunciation, doesn't see it as peace? Then the thought occurred to me. Notice how he just says, the thought occurred. It's really, I I like that, because it gives that sense that the thought's just coming and going. The thought just occurs, you know? Just that wording is very different from, I was thinking this. Well, the thought occurred. The thought occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I have not familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't understand it, doesn't see it as peace. This is so straightforward and obvious. But I find it encouraging, you know. I so, of course, sunk in the flood of sensuality, the mind that's really in the habit of wanting and aversion and reaction and amusing itself, so-called amusing. I mean, it's not really very amusing. But in turn, it's not going to say, oh, yeah, great. Let me just drop all of this stuff and be silent. And as you know, we come here, we come on retreat the first day, the like, mind's why did I do this? Maybe not the first day. The first day, it's all nice. Then the second day, the third day, why am I doing this? Or we start concocting. The mind starts concocting all kinds of things to do and think and talk about and worry about. And then there's some quiet. There's some space. There's some peace. We re-recognize natural state. And then, one way or another, for many people, not everybody all the time, but for everybody sometime, the moans, the shrieks, the groans—we start to think, "Oh, this is why I didn't want to be quiet." We start to see the things that maybe the incessant sense busyness, the incessant thinking, the incessant input, has really been shutting out. And for all of us, it can be whatever our particular demons might be. You know, it could be the self-judgment which starts getting so loud, and we think, how could I not have noticed that every single thought I ever have is judgment? People say that. You know it's not true, right? No, anybody, every single thought is all the same mental state. It's just a mental state. But we start to notice how often, how often. So whatever, whether it's judgment or needing to control or guilt or sorrow, or comparing, or fear of chaos, or worthlessness, or pride, or pick your particular ones. They're gonna come up. They're gonna come up. That's part of it. That's what part of what the silence, the seclusion allows is for these things that have been kept, you know, pushed away, but at a price, to come up. The second Aspect, or maybe the third aspect of this uh, kaya we wake, a seclusion of body, is what is really our mindfulness or restraint at the sense door, the moment to moment mindfulness. And this is what is our support when, it's all the time, but when these demons, when the shrieks and the groans and all the stuff that's been kept down starts to emerge. Restraint at the sense doors, which is often talked about as renunciation, but really the way Ajahn Buddhadasa talks about it, I love. He calls it satipanya, mindfulness wisdom at the moment of sense door contact. So there's seeing, there's feeling sadness, there's hearing, there's thinking, whatever. Sati is, of course, just our moment-to-moment bare attention just meeting what's happening just as it is. Wisdom, we can't make wisdom be there, but the moment-to-moment, moment, bear attention, just meeting, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing with the body and the emotional, the thinking realm. Moment after moment after moment. The third aspect of seclusion of body, is this restraint at the sense doors. It doesn't mean... Like when Thich Hans says, shut the windows. He says, you don't shut all the windows. You just narrow it down. We're still having the six sense doors and the six sense door contact. This um, satipanya at the moment of sense door contact is just the restraint is you bring the attention, meets what's happening right at the point of contact. And it just doesn't have to proliferate any further. It doesn't have to judge or compare or remember or make up a story, and if it does happen, that's the next sense door contact, the thought, the emotion, the memory, oh, thinking. So there's no sense that whatever's arising is wrong or bad. This aspect of seclusion, of restraint at the sense doors, doesn't mean pushing away anything, but it means that mindful, that simple awareness right here, right here, right here right here. I mean, that's obvious. That's what our practice is from the moment we walk in the door and hopefully the rest of our life too. But that's what is our support when the demons start to shriek, when it starts to really get wild. In a way, it's good. That doesn't usually happen in the first couple of days. You know, you think the mind's just falling asleep and getting restless, but actually we're cultivating, we're developing the moment-to-moment Restraint at the sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, just this, just this, just this, just this. It doesn't matter what this is. And so when just this is suddenly like, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, yeah, right, this too, this too. That's also restraint at the sense doors, satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. The wisdom arises just from the steadiness of bare attention. This is an aspect of seclusion of restraint, of renunciation. So this is really uh, uh, just an important aspect. We're not shutting out the world. We're not shutting off the senses. And this, you can see, is the place where this seclusion that helps us to cultivate the moment-to-moment awareness and wisdom is going to be able to take us back out into the world of people, of more stuff coming in. Because what we are kind of clearing the decks with the physical seclusion, you know, so that we can actually have a little space to notice how the mind works, how it gets sucked into sense contact and lost, how with just awareness that doesn't have to happen but how the sense contact is not the enemy, it's not a problem, and that includes mental, the mental sense door. So that seclusion is not motivated by thinking that sense experience, human beings, anything is bad, or that awareness, that freedom of heart and mind, that non-clinging is dependent on not having certain sense things present. That's conditioned. Can't be conditioned. But we're using conditions because we're so sunk in the other way of being and in the reactions that we need to artificially create a little space, a lot of space, and over and over and over. So in a way, when the the stuff starts coming up and the demons are shrieking, that's great. That's the place where we really learn the strength of moment to moment awareness where we learn that that's accessible when we learn that even at times sometimes we're really lost in the shrieking and the groaning and whatever's going on behind those closed doors but sometimes we all have that moment where oh it's just this it doesn't have to go away to know the peace of heart and mind of non-clinging it doesn't have to go away I don't have to be different. Nothing has to be different. The only, if different isn't the right word, the shift is a shift of interest, of awareness, from really being so absorbed and sunk in the object, even when the object is my emotional crisis, you know, that's still an object, to the awareness of. Awareness gets more interesting, the object less so. If I can find it, it's a quotation from Andy Olensky in one of his articles. I really kind of like the way he put it. As sati, as mindfulness grows, our mental attention is gradually shifted from the objects of awareness to the process of being aware. This comes from an attitude of letting go of the object, abandoning attachment to the object. And as I said, the object, any of the six senses, including all our stories and thoughts about me. The mind is a dynamic process. And when that mind, that attention, is stuck on what has arisen, kind of glued to it, as Ajahn Chah says, sunk in sensuality, then the mind seems rigid and limited. But the mind that is letting go moment after moment just keeps opening into the emerging flow. The flow just keeps on flowing. Mind is also part of that flow, moment after moment after moment. So our practice isn't about lining up and changing and getting the right flow of objects so we don't have to be bothered anymore. It's not that at all. It's the whole shift from being sunk in any sense experience at all. And Viveka seclusion is just a support for this. So that kaya we a and moment after moment, simple mindful presence, which is really this um, restraint at the sense door, just not shooting off. And as you know, moment after moment of mindful presence leads to what chitta we or seclusion of mind, which is one, it's when the mind is. Classically, it's defined as in a moment when the mind is secluded from the hindrances. And this is often a, a definition, often in the suttas, of absorption, of kind of deep states of one point of concentration. But it doesn't have to be that. But yes, there's many times in the suttas when he, when the Buddha says, secluded from the hindrances, you know, the mind entered the first jhana. That's often the kind of the little phrase that that's the prelude to moving into the deep absorptions, secluded from the hindrances. And that's one of the definitions of absorption. In that moment, the the chitta, the mind, the hindrances just don't get in. They're not there. It doesn't have to be deep absorption states, though. We all experience times of chitta when the mind is secluded from the hindrances. It's, it's, you know, there's moments when the hindrances aren't there, but times... When, you know, just your moment after moment attention is getting more steady, the mind is quieting down, you're noticing more, even if it's not quite conscious, the peace, the stillness of the non-reactive heart and mind. And as that just begins to, to be more felt, more noticed, it, it, it becomes a little more likely to occur in consciousness. You know, like a moment after m- one moment of mindfulness is a proximate cause for the next moment of mindfulness. You know, one moment of anger, it's a good indication for the next moment of anger when we're caught in it. So moment after moment of mindfulness quite naturally leads to citta And whether it's deep absorption concentration or moment to moment, just being with what happens, we like it. It's lovely. You know, those times, not when you're thinking... Oh, God, when's, when's anger going to come back? You know, I'm having a moment of peace, but I know craving's going to come. The cittu is like a more relaxed space where just for some time, those, those old hindrances just aren't coming. And it's really, it feels very kind of spacious, relaxed, light, unified. You know, it's not like you kind of look around and go, wow, they're really not here. Wow, it really feels nice. I do not even know. You know, you don't say all that stuff, but that's, or you might, but then you're gone. But it's really, and it gets more, um, it gets less brittle. It gets more reliable, more flexible. It's not like we have to, I have this seclusion of mind and I have to really hold on to my concentration. You know, I have to really protect it because something's going to come back. Don't see anything pleasant. Don't go look at the trees. Don't go, you know, like the food, that kind of it's not like that. It's really Oh, right. Because the peace is more accessible. The non-clinging mind is more more familiar more tangible. And and clinging and aversion and being sunk in it just isn't it isn't very interesting. You know? And they said the the, the more uh, kind of flexible and relaxed and steady. This state is a state. It's not, you know, the end of things. It's a state is just the less appealing all the regular sense pleasures are to the point that they just stuff that you really thought was so important. You can't even, from that place, you can't even what, who cares, you know? Who cares if I ever experience that again? Who cares? It's so gross. It's so crass, you know? (laughs) It really is. And just like it's a kind of a, just a subtle, and this is um, Chitta Uweka whether it's deep concentration or in a more broad, flexible way. It's not the end of things. It's not what we aspire to. But it's a, it is another level of seclusion. And it, again, leads to another that the Upandita calls a, he calls it Vikambhava, Rueka, a more subtle sense of seclusion where the hindrances are not only not there, but they're very far removed. They're just like really quiet. There's really this sense they just couldn't get in there, even if you tried. And this is a very, the mind is very light and soft and buoyant and pliable and it's nice. This is not freedom though. We like it, but it's not freedom. But again, as the mind is getting more and more secluded from being sunk in sense pleasures, from reactivity, from the hindrances, the lightness, the emptiness, the buoyancy, the non-reactivity, and the ability to be with anything gets more and more pronounced, recognizable, familiar. And that's what the value is of this seclusion, not that it's a state to hold on to, because you can't, we can't, it's gonna go. But that within it, just as without it, but within it, it's a bit easier to recognize that peace, the emptiness, the non clinging. But these, as it gets more subtle, the seclusion, it is very tricky because we fall so easily into, um, it's called um, corruptions. Of insight, upakalesa is the word, but where we get basically attached because it's so nice. So, in, this, in the chitta we wake in all the various forms, one big thing that happens for all of us is at some point attachment to it creeps in. Usually we don't notice it right away because attachment isn't there, the hindrances are far away. But gradually, little by little, the attachment can really creep in. And it's subtle. We don't recognize it, of course, until it's not there. That nice citta-uweka isn't there anymore. And we really think we weren't attached. But so much of our practice, even we can kid ourselves, comes to be around trying to get back to that state that experience, that's what freedom is, that's what, and these grosser things can't be freedom in these grosser things, it has to be that, you know, and we don't see, that's conditioning, that's can't be freedom, but it's basically the more subtle levels. it's so much nicer (laughs) than anything we normally experience, that sometimes we we, we may know it's not freedom, but we say, you know what, it's good enough, (laughs) I'll settle for this. You know, <laughs> just let me get back there. And that's when we start getting attached to the silence, attached to retreat. We start, you know, either like yearning for retreat or not wanting anything to do with other people. Or what happens on places like this is, you know, any sound, God forbid, there should ever be a sound in this building and, you know, it's like we have got to run around and stop all the sounds because it's going to wreck somebody's, you know, practice. It's going to, you know, impede in their silence, in their liberation. You know, we you recognize I'm exaggerating a little, but not that much. I will say I have been part of meetings because I'm on the teacher's council here where we're, like, talking for 20 minutes about... Sometimes people walk out that door there, and people are sitting here in the hall and they hear the door open, and you know it's gonna really destroy their practice. And I'm I, okay, I'm only hearing my side of it. And I had just come back from Asia where noise is not exactly, you know, the issue. I mean, there's noise, but there shouldn't be noise does not even arise in anyone's mind. You know, and I'm saying, great, let them slam the door, you know, let there be some noise, for God's sake. Anyway, I've That's that's the kind of thing that we spend all our time doing, having (laughs) discussions like that. That's why we get so tired. Um, Anyway, we can get reactive, we can get obsessive, trying to protect our seclusion of mind, our wueika. Or we get, this is good enough, kind of a dull, this is it, this is all there is. And it's like, very subtly, something turns off the interest, the investigation. Okay, now I know. This is it. I mean, let's say that, right? <sighs> I mean, relaxing. Hopefully, we're already relaxed. But when I go, oh, I don't mean to relax. It's like a kind of, don't need awareness anymore. It's just going to take care of itself in a way of we tune off into dullness. As the Buddha said once, said, two things I never lost sight of again, when I was still an unenlightened bodhisatta. One was never to be lax in my perseverance, in my energy. And the second was never to settle merely for wholesome and pleasant states of mind. Never to settle for wholesome and pleasant states of mind. And I tell you, at least from my experience, that's a lot more difficult than it sounds not to settle. You know, we think, oh, all this work. This is great. Not selling doesn't mean we have to hate the wholesome and pleasant states of mind, but not land there as me. Not land there with clinging. Keep looking. Keep exploring. I had friends who were monk. One friend I'm thinking of who was a monk in Thailand for many years living in the forest, and he said, you know, he really came to his life was very peaceful. His mind seemed really calm, equanimous, really untroubled. And you could think, well, this is it. This is freedom. And at some point, though, he said he realized, no, it's like it's the conditions are supporting peace, calmness, equanimity. But I don't think it's freedom. I don't think, you know, that I'm free from clinging. I'm just getting dull. And he said that was really the motivation that had him, uh, that he, he left Thailand, came back to the States and disrobed and found out, yes, it was true. <laughs> <laughs> Clinging was still arising in the mind and heart. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying we have to look for trouble. That's what we, we can support ourselves, but not to settle merely for wholesome states of mind, merely for peace. This is from Ajahn Buddhadassa. I was reminded from talking to someone today about this. He's, this is, he's talking about shunyata emptiness, which this translator, Santikaro translates as voidness. Because this is the third kind of seclusion, the seclusion from suffering, the seclusion from, this is the way I described it in the beginning, seclusion of beings as... A, as um, a synonym for awakening, or shinyata. So this is how Buddha Dasa, who's very idiosyncratic, how he talks about it. First, shinyata, or emptiness, refers to the characteristic or fundamental nature of all things. The fact that the character of all things, and he means all things, is voidness, emptiness of inherent self. The second application he uses of the word shunyata points to the quality of the mind when it is not grasping and clinging at anything. The character of the mind when it isn't attaching to anything is called voidness also. This character of the mind of not clinging. And so he says, to know dhamma means that dhamma is truly present and that we are aware of it. And similarly to no shunyata means that voidness is manifest in awareness. So I encourage you in any moment that the mind is aware of any measure of emptiness, of voidness, even if it's not absolute or perfect. Keep on recognizing it. Actually on any one day, emptiness, shunyata, Remember that the quality of the mind and heart that's not clinging to anything. On any one day, it's there repeatedly in our awareness. Even if it's not the absolute shunyata, it's still very good, as long as we take the trouble to notice it. If we take an interest in this sort of emptiness, of voidness, right from the start, it will generate a contentment with voidness. It makes it easier to practice, to recognize, and to really come to know it more and more deeply. So in a way, that's what the point of all our seclusion is, to help us recognize, not us, right, but awareness just to notice. Voidness, emptiness, the heart and mind of non-clinging. Seclusion from suffering in a moment. As Ajahn Buddhadasa says, may not be the end of things, but it's still very good and it's arising really very frequently every day in our minds, especially here. When we're set on looking for experience or reacting to experience we don't like, we're still caught in the flood of sensuality and we don't notice just the moments of emptiness of nothing special no reference point to me no reference point to anything no nothing you don't have they're not like big you know fireworks going off nothing special but over and over we learn to recognize them and we don't have to generate as he says a contentment with voidness that happens by itself and it it's very trustworthy, the sense of the mind, the attention moving more and more to the process of awareness and less and less sinking into whatever the object is. And then the emptiness becomes more and more obvious. You could kind of say it's our Cohen to learn, to recognize, and to trust that the silence, the space, the emptiness, it's within it's always accessible. It's not dependent on seclusion. Although the seclusion helps us learn to recognize and re-recognize. It's not dependent uh, on any particular experience. And so, yeah, it's easier. It is easier for most of us to recognize the heart and mind of non-clinging, just very little moments of it to recognize how we're lost in reactivity and sensuality. It's easier to recognize that when we have a measure of physical and mental seclusion. It's just too much going on. But we don't have to stay locked in that seclusion. We don't have to be afraid. We have to find, you know, somehow that as long as it's dependent on the situation, it still isn't free. You know, it isn't stable enough. It isn't strong enough. We haven't really stabilized in it. So it's how to take it back into the world. This is our practice for whatever we do after this. It doesn't mean one couldn't be a hermit or a contemplative or live really silently. That's also possible, but it just won't, even that won't always be the case. I am going to go back to Thomas Merton. He's talking again about the reasons for being a hermit. One who is called to solitude is not called to solitude to cultivate the illusion that he is different, withdrawn, and elevated. He is called to emptiness. And in this emptiness, she does not find points upon which to base a contrast between herself and others. On the contrary, she realizes, although perhaps confusedly at first, that she has entered into a solitude that is really shared by everyone. And hence, solitude is the foundation of a deep, pure, and gentle sympathy with all other humans, whether or not they are capable of realizing the suffering of their plight. Moreover, it's the doorway by which she enters into the mystery of God and brings others into that mystery by the power of love and humility. Just like St. Antony came out of his solitude and spent his life helping others, even in a short time, the seclusion really serves us to be able more to make that bridge to the rest of humanity. I want to just um, give two examples to end. One, during the six-week retreat right after 9-11, it was immediately after 9-11, and a woman was sitting and I was working with her, and at the end of six weeks, she was speaking to her sister on the phone. So she the woman I was working with had been on the retreat. I mean, she knew about 9-11, right? Everyone knew. But she didn't know anything else that had happened. I don't know if you remember, but that six weeks was that whole anthrax scare and all of that, which ended up going nowhere. But at that time, there was like you know, panic. It was like this incredible panic in everyone. So she was telling me, at the end of the six weeks, there's a couple days where you can talk, she called her sister. And her sister, she said, it was basically hysterical filled with anxiety, just overwhelmed. And she said she really saw how talking to her sister on the phone, she, she could meet that hysterical anxiety with a calmness and a real presence that she said she never would have thought she was capable of before. And that period of seclusion and mindfulness, of course, and re-recognizing the non reactive heart and mind really allowed her to be much more present in the midst of this for her sister. And then, one last story. I read this in the New York Times. It was a, a book about, actually, I forgot to write what the book was about, but it's about Hermes, and it's talking about a woman who. a nun in an Anglican convent. And this is a nun whose need for solitude had taken her to an abandoned cabin on a cliff. She repaired it herself, and she lived there for 18 years, really isolated. But she wasn't quite alone because people kept bringing their troubles to her. However, she believed that the responsibility of the solitary was, and this is her quotation, to stand at the intersection between the love of God and suffering humanity. So I really like that, that the purpose of the seclusion is to stand at that crossroads between the love, the dhamma, and suffering humanity. And we're all part of all of that. It's not separate. So let's just sit silently for a moment.